2 Timothy 3 tells us that the Word of God is profitable. So we want to go through the whole counsel of God. Isaiah chapter number 5, and we're going to begin with the first seven verses again, uh, like we did last week. If you would stand for the reading of God's Word, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Good to have the group of ladies that joined us this evening, and we welcome you. We're glad you're here. God bless you, and thank you for being here tonight. The Bible says, uh, beginning in Isaiah 5, 1, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my well-beloved, touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it, and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, uh, brought it forth wild grapes, and now go to it, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and, uh, and, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down, and I will lay it waste. It shall be not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression for righteousness but behold a cry. And the title of the Bible study will continue is this, A Vineyard of Wild Grapes. Let's pray together. Lord, help us as we look at uh, the, um, the sins that Judah had such a hard time with. And Lord, we'll see that in our own hearts and lives, these same sins can evidence themselves within us. And uh, Lord, help us to be uh, willing and quick to deal with this sin where we notice it in our life, Lord, to correct it. And, Lord, help us to take heed to the warnings that we'll go over this evening in Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, uh, as I laid out last week, Isaiah 5, 1 through 7 is a song, a Hebrew song. It's a poem that uh, comes out to be a Hebrew song. And those who understand the culture and those who speak the language will tell you that it's one of the most beautiful songs in the entire Bible. And uh, the beauty of it doesn't really translate into English. But the concept here is that the Lord chose Abraham, and uh, that's the branch that goes down in the soil. The soil is the territory where Israel uh, is, or definitely was, where it used to be much larger. And uh, God did everything He could by giving them the good land and by giving them a rich Heritage, he did everything he could to produce a vineyard of beautiful grapes. But no matter how hard he worked it, and no matter how hard he tried, what uh, Israel gave him was wild grapes. Wild grapes. And that is evidenced in their sin. And so after trying many things, after the, the, um, uh, the pruning and uh, the uh, tearing out and starting over, eventually God said, I'm done, I'm through. Israel, you're a wicked people, you're a stiff-necked, a stubborn people, and I'm just going to 
tear down the hedge or the wall of protection, and I'm going to allow the enemy to come in and run you over, and I'm not going to work this vineyard anymore. I am through. And so this is a prophecy that would come true. And so we looked much at that last week. We looked at chapter 4 and then uh, chapter 5 up to a certain point. And I gave you an outline. Let's run through the outline real quick together and then uh, we'll get into some more notes tonight. Notice out of chapter 4, we looked at number 1, the future for God's people, the future for God's people. And we said throughout the book of Isaiah, Isaiah does a lot of bouncing around. He talks about the modern time in which he lives and the state of Israel that they're currently in. But then he also, as we'll see in the weeks to come, he looks ahead to the first coming of Christ, uh, when Jesus would be born as a baby. And then he also jumps ahead to the second coming of Christ. And uh, when Jesus will come back as King Jesus there at the Valley of Megiddo and then set up his reign in Jerusalem. And so here in chapter 4, we begin by looking at uh, a couple of thoughts. Uh, The first thought we looked at was the pain uh, of the tribulation. We said that the Hebrew night, or rather the Hebrew day starts at 6 o'clock in the evening. And so, uh, at least it did uh, in this time. And so you had night before you had daylight. And before you get to the reign of Jesus, which is represented by the daytime, you have the night of the tribulation, the night of the tribulation. And so it will be so bad that seven women will will gather and be married to one man because war will wipe out much of the male population. There will be a dearth or a lack of men. And so uh, that is a sign of how painful the tribulation will be. And then we looked at the promise of the millennial reign. We looked at several thoughts uh, about that, Jesus is coming, what that will look like. We looked at passages out of Zechariah and Matthew and Luke, and we talked about Christ's future reign in Jerusalem. And so we looked at the future for God's people, and then we got to chapter 5, and we looked at the fierceness of God toward his people. And we see that while God one day would restore Jerusalem and sit on David's throne and Jesus Christ will be king of the earth and uh, all that's laid out in chapter 4, current day Israel that Isaiah was living in, boy, God wasn't real happy with his people. There was a fierceness in God's heart. There was a frustration and an anger God had toward his people. And then we looked at letter A, the parable of of the vineyard, the parable of the vineyard. And uh, I pointed out several thoughts about this parable to you uh, last week. We talked about the richness of the soil out of verse 1. In fact, look back at verse number 1 of chapter 5. The Bible says, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. Notice that phrase, fruitful hill. And we said that the reason why the grapes became wild grapes and not the grapes God desired had nothing to do with the soil. The soil that God chose was the best soil. This was a land that flowed with milk and honey. This was a land that gave forth um, uh, uh, grapes, uh, clusters of grapes that had to be carried on a pole. God prepped and gave his people the best possible part of planet earth to have a planet, the richness of the soil. We looked at verses 2 and 4, and we looked at the resolve of the beloved. Look down at verse number 4 of chapter 5. The Bible says, What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, 
brought it forth wild grapes. He is saying to Israel, he's saying, you judge. Look at the way you've behaved and look at everything over the history of Israel that I have done. And you tell me, is it my fault that wild grapes are here or is it, or is it your fault? It was not the Lord's fault. He had done everything he could in order to make Israel into who he wanted it to be. So we looked at the richness of the soil. We looked at the resolve of the beloved. We looked at the rebellion of the branches. Look down at verse number uh, 2. The Bible says, And he fenced it and gathered on the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes. Look here. And it brought forth wild grapes. Verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. He says, I wanted grapes, and what I got out of this was wild grapes. You decide, is it my fault or is it your fault? What had happened was the people had rebellion, rebelled. They had a heart of rebellion. God wanted one thing, but they were bent on something else. And then we see, lastly, under letter A, the response of the beloved. Look at verses 5 and 6. And after trying and trying and trying and trying over many generations and through many judges and then many kings and not getting the result that he so desired out of that vineyard, he finally threw up his hands and said, I give up. Verse 5, And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof. And it shall be eaten up. It, it goes on to say, And break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. I will lay it waste. I will lay it waste. He says, I am done. Now, uh, much uh, God had given them military superiority for thousands of years outside of being taken into captivity a handful of times but during the rule and reign of David and then Solomon and on down when enemies would come up against them for the most part they were victorious there was a wall of protection around Jerusalem that God's hedge of protection and God says I'm done. In short order, order, Assyria would carry away the ten northern tribes, and then Babylon would come in and carry away the two southern tribes. And just a handful of years after this prophecy was given. So we see the parable of the vineyard. Now let's turn our attention to letter B and the remainder of chapter 5 tonight, and let's look at the prophecy of God's vengeance. The prophecy of of God's vengeance. And so we're going to see exactly why it is from verse 8 down through verse number 30 that God, that that uh, we're going to see why it is that God is so angry at Israel, at Judah. Uh, he's going to lay out for them their transgressions, their wrongdoing. So what we're going to do with that outline you have on the back is I'm going to give you the first thought, the first main thought, and then I'm going to give you the second main thought, and then we're going to go back and forth from one to the other and see how these work in correlation. So notice below the prophecy of God's vengeance. So let me encourage you to take notes there on the back of your uh, prayer bulletin there. Notice Judah's sin against the Lord. Judah's sins against the Lord. So the Lord is going to articulate where it is that they have messed up, uh, how it is 
they've done wrong. So notice there, Judah's sins against the Lord. And so the pattern from verse 8 down through verse 30 is that the, the sin is laid out and then God is going to tell them uh, how he's going to punish them because of that particular sin or that grouping of sin. So Judah's sin against the Lord and then notice the other major thought below uh, letter B there, the Lord's sanctions against Judah. So we see Judah's sins, and then we're going to see the Lord's sanctions. God's going to punish them. Now, in the, the, in the, the political world that we live in today, if a country is just not behaving itself, one thing a country can do is they can put sanctions against that country. They can limit trade or threaten other countries that trade with that country, and, and they can uh, do that sort of thing to try to cause that country to change its behavior. It's a method to get a country to behave itself without waging war. And it's a a diplomacy tactic, a more brute force type diplomacy tactic. So when I use that word sanction, what I'm saying is this is how the Lord's going to punish Judah because of their sin. Okay, so we see Judah's sins against the Lord. Those will be laid out. We're going to look at those this evening. And then as a result of their sin, how is God going to sanction or punish them? Okay, so below Judah's sin against the Lord, notice the first woe here. It is a woe against covetousness. Now, six times, six times from verse number 8 down through verse number 30, we see the word woe used. Woe used. Now that word woe is a very important word in the Bible. When you see the word woe, that is a strong, very strong term. Now we would use the word alas or oh alas. Now uh, that would be more uh, the English word maybe that we would use. But when you see the word woe in Bible, boy, you need to sit up and take strong attention because this is God giving the strongest possible warning over sinful behavior. The New Testament passage that would parallel this would be Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus is addressing the Pharisees. And over and over again, he says unto, you, unto them, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. And he calls them snakes and vipers. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Over and over again, Jesus levies these woes against the Pharisees and uh, he is nailing them to the wall because of their behavior. And we get the same spirit from Matthew 23 right here in Isaiah chapter number 5. So let's look at the first woe, this woe against covetousness. Look at verse number 8 with me. The Bible says, Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. Now, that you may not quite understand what that means off of an initial reading, but what's going on here is that they're turning their farmland into just enough to get them by, uh, growing enough crop to get them by and help them to make a living to where they're joining together farmlands into this large industrial 
farmland complex so they can make themselves rich and they can uh, uh, have way, way more in excess than they need. This is a sign of covetousness. And the Lord says you're putting house to house together. You're growing your farms and you're money-minded. You're trying to have more in excess. This is greed and this is sin. Go back with me to Exodus chapter number 20 and look at verse 17. Exodus chapter 20, we find Moses on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments as we now know them from the Lord. And the tenth commandment on the list we find in verse number 17 the bible says thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife nor his manservant nor his maid servant nor his ox nor his ass nor anything that is thy neighbor's and so this idea of covetousness is a great sin against God. Turn over with me to Psalm chapter number 10. Greed, covetousness, wanting to have more than you need for the sake of living a life of great excess. Look at verse number 3. The Bible says in Psalm 10, it says, For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire and blesseth the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth. What kind of language is that? The Bible says, you show me someone that's covetous, I will show you someone the Lord abhorreth, abhorreth, covetousness. Now you say, well, pastor, that's Old Testament and um, uh, covetousness was something addressed in the Old Testament. But did God have anything to say to the church about covetousness? And he did. And his language on it is quite strong. Turn over to Colossians chapter number three and verse number five. Colossians chapter 3, and really, while this is written to Israel and their struggle with it within Israel, we want to make sure that we take a moment and realize that this is not just something that was an Old Testament prophet. None of the woes we're going to go over tonight is an Old Testament problem. This is a problem that exists within the heart of man. Look at Colossians 3 and verse number 5. The Bible says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Right, So within our members, these sins continue to find themselves uh, rearing their ugly head, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, look here, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry. You know, covetousness is something uh, that exists within our hearts, whether we want to realize it or not. Now... I grew up with the Ten Commandments posted on the wall of my home. I grew up uh, hearing about covetousness being a sin. And, and to be honest with you, I think the explanation I was given as a child and even as a young adult was a little too simplistic. It was the idea of when you see something that someone else has that you don't have the ability to, to, to have and you want that, that's covetousness and that's wrong. And I would say that that is an accurate definition of covetousness, but it is not a complete definition of covetousness. Can I give you another concept of covetousness that I have struggled with as an adult? It's wanting something that you can't afford and buying it on consumer credit and then paying it off little at a time off a high interest rate. That's covetousness. 
Now, listen, if you use credit cards because you don't have enough money and you're using that to pay off your needs or you're using that to get your needs, that's one thing. But when you're using credit cards to go out and buy wants that you can't afford, that is covetousness. You've heard me say it before, but many people cannot let, when it comes to their money, they cannot let the Lord be their master because MasterCard is their master. Some missionary comes and presents their work and says, listen, we need money for a a van or a new building. And you reach in your pocket to give and all of a sudden you realize there's nothing there. Now listen, I'm not against having nice things. I've said I have nice things. I've said it many times before. But I am against having nice things if it means that you never have anything to give to the Lord and His work. Now, I don't know who does the giving here. I know how much comes in, but I don't know who does the giving. But I'm going to tell you right now that maybe about 15% of our active members tithe. Maybe 15 to 20%. I'm guessing many folks that go to church here don't put anything in the offering plate or just a little here or there. And why is that? Is that because we don't want to give? I want to believe the best in you all. Can I tell you why I think many people don't give? Because they're so strapped for cash, because they're living a life of luxury at the expense of a credit card. And so we have to be careful about this. That's covetousness. And the Lord says, Woe unto those that scheme to be greedy. Woe unto those that are putting field to field together to maximize their profits so they can be greedy and have more than they need. Many of us today aren't greedy with money in the bank, but we're greedy with the niceties of life that we enjoy. Somebody drives a $60,000 truck and then has a monthly payment that leaves them with no money at the end of the month. And so what's the Lord say about this? Well, we see the sanction, the Lord's sanction on this is desolation and barrenness. Turn, look back at Isaiah chapter 5 and look at verse number 9. The Bible says, In mine ears, saith the Lord of hosts, of a truth many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair without inhabitants. Yea, ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and the seed of an homer shall yield an ephah. He's saying you're going through these elaborate extreme measures to be able to have this massive vineyard so you can have maximum profits. And God says... I'm going to curse the earth so that you get less than you would have if you would have just worked the field that was yours. He says, I'm going to put holes in your bag and I'm going to hurt your money because of your greed. Second Chronicles chapter 36. Turn over there. That's to the left in your Bible before the book of Psalms. Second Chronicles chapter number 36. This is a really neat from a mathematical standpoint, this is a really neat passage. The Israelites, for 490 years, had ignored the Lord's command to give the earth its rest in the year of the Jubilee. Every seven years, they were to give that field a rest year and not till, till the land and not work it. 
And now we know from an agricultural standpoint that soil is uh, that much more healthy. Its pH balance is better when you give it a year off every seven years. Almost like God knew what he was talking about, but the Israelites ignored that. Why? They were trying to maximize their profits. Look at verse number 21 of Second Chronicles 36. The Bible says, "...to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land hath enjoyed her Sabbaths, for as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill three score and ten years." Anybody want to guess how long the, the Judahites were in captivity in Babylon? Three score and ten years. For 490 years, they refused to give the land its rest as God had commanded. And God said, okay, I'm going to give my land its rest back. So you will sit in captivity for 70 years. Well, I give 490 divided by uh, 7 is 70. Well, I give my land its rest back. God said, I'm going to lay the land desolate and barren because of your disobedience. You see, I remember the parable that Jesus tells in the New Testament about the man who had great, uh, uh, a, a great harvest and he filled up his barn. And what did he do? He built bigger barns, right? And said, I'm going to eat, drink, and make myself merry. And that night God killed him. Many times we're trying to stockpile and stockpile and make ourselves better and better and better without any consideration to what God wants us to do. And God says, you don't forget, I control the money of this planet. I control the profit that sits in your bank account or the future profit. And if you want to work against me in becoming covetous, I can reach down right away and I can take away every penny you have. Woe against covetousness. Uh, We need a church filled with people who care more about lost and dying souls and care more about uh, the gospel and eternity than they do their own bank account and being rich. Than they do about their own vehicle they drive, their own house they live in, their own niceties of life. They put Jesus first and their own comfort second. A woe against covetousness. Notice below Judah's sin against the Lord, the second woe, a woe against the party life. A woe against the party life. Look at verse number 11 of chapter number 5. Isaiah 5, verse number 11. The Bible says, Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night, till wine inflame them. You'd say, well, verse 11 is talking about alcoholism. Well, let's put it together with verse 12. Look at verse 12. And the harp and the viol, the the tabret and pipe and wine and in their feasts or their parties. But they regard not the work of the Lord, neither consider the operation of his hands. What's going on here? These people are living it up and having a great time. They're boozing it up. They're going to parties. There's music at these parties. There's fun at these parties. They are living the high life. They are living the dream, as it said. They are having a great time. Boy, they're going from one drunken party to the next drunken party. We call this riotous living, the party life. And God looks down at a culture that's drunk on entertainment and having a one giant party, and He says, that's not why I made you. I made you to love me and serve me. You're just too filled with having fun 
to worry about doing what's right. Turn over to Proverbs chapter number 20 and look with me at verse number 1. A couple of uh, passages here on this idea of the party life. Now look, I want to say while you're turning over there, there is nothing wrong going to a birthday party. There's nothing wrong with uh, going to uh, uh, a bridal shower. There's nothing wrong with attending a wedding feast. Jesus attended a wedding feast. There's nothing wrong with a party. Uh, But there is something wrong with jumping from party to party to party and not taking life serious, especially when it is the drunken lifestyle type party. Look at verse number 1 of Proverbs 20. The Bible says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. The Bible calls wine a mocker. It says alcohol or strong drink is raging uh, alcohol will totally mess up a man. Turn over to Ecclesiastes. Now, interestingly enough, Ecclesiastes 2, interestingly enough, the same man that wrote the book of Proverbs would write what we're about to read in Ecclesiastes. And the narrative there is that when uh, Solomon was a young man, he wrote the book of Proverbs. He had his head on right. He did what was right. Uh, he, He knew how to articulate it. He put it in the form of the book of Proverbs that we have today. And then he strayed from that path and he just said, you know what? I've I've walked the straight and narrow long enough. Let me try the world. Let me see what the party life is really like. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Now before I read verses 1 through 11, for those of you that don't know, please understand there is no person on planet earth in wealth that compares to Solomon in his day. You could take Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Mark Mark Zuckerberg, and Elon Musk and take all their money and compile it together, and this person still wouldn't have been as rich as Solomon was. You go in and you read about the wealth of Solomon. There's never been anyone that's come anywhere near having the wealth that Solomon had. What did he do with all that money? Well, for a while, he lived the party life. Look at chapter 2 and look at verse number 1. He describes his party life. The Bible says, I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. That's the party life. Therefore enjoy pleasure. And behold, this also is empty. This also is vanity. Uh, Verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad. And of mirth, what doth it? I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting my heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly, that I may uh, see that, uh, that what was that good for the sons of men, uh, which they shall do under the heaven all the days of their life. I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. And I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of waters. Uh, uh, to water wherewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small uh, cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great 
and increased more than all that were before me. In Jerusalem also my wisdom remained with me, and whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. And boy, that statement is truer than we could ever understand. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Look at verse 11. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. He said, I've, I've done it all. He said, I've had everything there is to have. I've built houses. I've had, I've had uh, woods with very particular types of trees. I've had orchestras on demand and men singers and women singers on demand. I've had so many servants that I've had servants be born in my house, second generation servants. He said, I've had it all. And he said, it's all empty. It's all empty. When you, uh, what God's looking down at Judah here and he sees a country that's gone off the tracks. He says they're covetous and greedy. He says all they're concerned about is just living up the party life and having a great time and being drunk and uh, running from one party to the other. And so that's Judah's sin against the Lord. Uh, the, Lord's sanction, the Lord's sanction against Judah for this is death and brokenness. Death and brokenness. Look down at verse number 13 of chapter 5. Let's read down through verse number 17. Again, verse 11 and 12 talk about the drinking the strong drink from morning to evening and going to the parties in verse 12, verse 13. Therefore, my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. If you're underlining in your Bible, underline that phrase, they have no knowledge. We're going to come back to that in a moment. And their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. Therefore, hell hath enlarged herself. Real quick there, the word for hell in that verse is the Hebrew word shehol, which means the grave. So what it's saying is that because people have lived this lifestyle, it has put them in the grave. Okay, that's not the same word for hell that we would think of the eternal inferno. Okay, that word is literally in other places in the Old Testament translated grave. So therefore the grave or hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure and their glory and their multitude and their pomp. Notice the word pomp. And he that rejoiceth shall descend into it and the mean men shall be brought down and the mighty man shall be humbled and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled but the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment and God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness then shall the lamb feed after their manner and the waste places of the fat ones shall strangers eat what's he saying here he's saying that because you have lived the party life there is a lack of knowledge now again the interpretation is to Judah. Well, let me just make an application to us here in America. Let me make an, an application to the Western culture at large. I have sitting right here next to my Bible, my cell phone. I keep it here so I can look down and see the time, right, with my preaching. But on my cell phone, like many of your cell phones, we have access to the Internet. How many of you have readily access to the Internet in some way? Would you hold up your hand, whether it's a smartphone or a computer? Do you know that with a cell phone, you have access to any piece of information that you want to have? 
We live in what's called the information era. Right? Information at the tap of a finger. Anything you want to know, you can find out real quick. Right? It's hard for anything to even happen in a remote part of the world. If it's sensational enough, it's probably going to make it into your social media feed. Right? Some video in the form of a video. You can go to the poorest third world countries in the world and they have smartphones connected to the internet. Okay? I've been to some third world countries in my, in my days. I've seen people who don't even have a house to live in, but they've got a smartphone. All right? And that's just how the world is today. That's everywhere. It's every corner of the world. Right? But, even though we have access to so much information, people today know very little. Why? Because they're drunk on entertainment. The party life. It says there in uh, verse number 13, they have no knowledge. Why don't they have knowledge? Because they're too busy getting drunk and having a good time. Too busy getting drunk and having a good time. They're lazy. What does that lead to? Well, for Judah, it led to death, and it led to brokenness. Turn over to Lamentations chapter 4. Let me show you just a handful of years later what it would look like in Judah. Jeremiah lived through that. And Jeremiah was uh, followed Isaiah. They, they were contemporaries for a while, but Jeremiah would outlive Isaiah and would live to see Israel, Judah, fall into captivity. He would be sent back by Babylon to live in Jerusalem and uh, Lamentations chapter 4 is written after the tumbling of the great Judah because of the wickedness of their covetousness and party lifestyle. Look at verse 4 of Lamentations chapter 4. The Bible says, The tongue of the suckling child cleaveth to the root of his mouth for thirst. Why? Mom is so malnourished, she can't breastfeed her child. The young child asks bread, and no man breaketh it unto them. They that did feed delicately are desolate in the streets. They that were brought up in scarlet embrace, embrace dunghills. Now, we think of dunghills as maybe like the city sewage, but beyond that, this was the city dump. They're dumpster diving to feed themselves. They were raised in scarlet, now they're dumpster diving. Verse 6, for the punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom that was overthrown as in a moment and no hands stayed on her. What would you rather have? Fire and brimstone fall to heaven and wipe you out and all be over with? Or to have to sit there and watch your city be a, a pile of, of heap? Moms are so starved, they can't feed their child. There's no milk to be given. Children wandering around asking for bread and no man to give it to them, so they've got to turn to the, the, the city dump to look for scraps to eat. You see, death and brokenness came because they were living the party life, and God says, woe to those that want to live this lifestyle. A woe against the party life. Notice, the third woe mentioned in chapter number 5, a woe against blasphemy and unbelief. A woe against blasphemy and unbelief. Go back to verse number 18 of chapter 5. And this one is a little bit more snarky. 
in the way it's written because the attitude of the people is very snarky. And we get three woes back to back here. And so before we look back at the sanction, we're going to look at several woes in a row. Verse 18, Woe unto them that draw iniquity with cords of vanity, and sin as it were with a cart rope. Now, um, if you're not quite sure what that means, verse 19 gives us a little more explanation. Look here. That say, let him, this is speaking of God, let him make speed and hasten his work, that we may see it, and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come, that we may know it. Yikes. They're saying, what 18 and 19 is saying here is that these people don't even believe in God anymore. They're walking around and they're tempting God and saying, okay, if you're really up there, then drop down punishment on us right now. Oh, see, it didn't happen. God must not be real. For years there was an atheist that would go into parks and he'd stand on top of a bench and he would say, there is no God. I'm going to prove it right now. And he would you know, go on and on and a big crowd would gather and he'd say, there is no God and I'm proof that there is no God. God, if you're up there, strike me down with lightning right now. And then nothing would happen. And he'd look at the people and say, see, If there was a God, he had every chance to show himself. There is no God. And he'd go on his little atheist speech. One day day he's doing this in the park and he's going on and on in this manner. And finally someone in the crowd shouts him down and, and, and shouts over him, gets him to be quiet. And he says, sir, the fact that God did not strike you with lightning does not prove that God does not exist. What it proves is that God is merciful and long suffering to you. That's what these people are doing here. Look back again with me at verse number 19, and you see this spirit here. It says here in verse 19, that say, let him make speed and and, and hasten his work. Uh, uh, You've been telling us, Isaiah, that punishment's coming, and we're not seeing any punishment. We're doing what we want, and and we're getting away with it. Uh, Let him show himself, that we may see it, and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw nigh and come, that we may know it, that we may know it, blasphemy and unbelief, this brazen challenging of God. Turn over to Psalm chapter 74 and verse number 10. Psalm 74 and verse 10. We see that there have always been those that scoff the name of God, that scoff righteousness, that belittle and put down and blaspheme the name of God. 74 verse 10, the Bible says, O God, How long shall the adversary reproach? Shall the enemy blaspheme thy name forever? You ever felt that way as someone who's righteous? You see a wicked world that just takes God's name in vain and puts him down and belittles him and makes fun of him. And you're like, God, are you ever going to step up for yourself? Are you ever going to stop the blasphemy? One day these people will face God. One day they're going to give an answer for the way they behave. Go over to 2 Peter chapter number 3 and verse number 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. And in the New Testament, Peter addresses this in his final uh, epistle that he would write. This idea of those that want to scoff the name of God and belittle the name of God. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 3. The Bible tells us, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust. And I would say that's the day we live in today, is it not? Are there not people that walk around and scoff the name of God? Scoff the work of God? Scoff 
uh, churches and belittle and try to put down uh, people for their faith. My friend, one day, God says, woe to those who behave that way. Again, I also want to just make this point from a larger standpoint. One way to tell that a Christian country is on its way out is when you begin to see the markers laid out in Isaiah 5 taking place within that culture. We live in a covetous country. We live in a country where the party life is the norm. Just go to any public university and what you find usually is a very large party atmosphere. Look at the white collar work world and what you find is outside of work hours people who are uh, uh, drugged up and drunk and uh, party life. And uh, you see those things permeating a culture. You see a culture on decline. A woe against blasphemy and unbelief. Look at the next one laid out there for us. A woe against Moral relativism. Moral relativism. Look at verse number 20 and 21. These verses were a little, are a little more commonly used in preaching. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness and put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Moral relativism. America made a gigantic mistake, uh, I would say well over a century ago, when we quit telling people to do right because the Bible says so, and started telling them to do right because it's right to do right. It's right to do right. Listen, we don't just do right because it's right to do right. We do right because thus saith the Lord. And when we get away from thus saith the Lord, then you get to shift what's right and what's not right. And what's happened is we very slowly, as the culture, uh, shifted what's right, and now the definition of right is defined by those who've hijacked our culture. Hey, listen, there's nothing new under the sun. This type of thing has happened before. Go with me, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter number 23 and verse 14. And we get again a glimpse at what Isaiah was talking about when he said within the culture of Judah that they had called good evil and evil good and bitter sweet and sweet bitter. What was going on in Israel that would cause the prophet to say that? Look at Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 14. The Bible says, I have seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem an horrible thing. These are supposed to be the holy men. These are the ones that are defining right. Look here. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen also the hands of evildoers, uh, that none doth return from his wickedness. They are all of them unto me as Sodom and the inhabitants thereof as Gomorrah. This is within the nation of Judah. The, the prophets are committing adultery. They're living in sexual sin. They're, they're strengthening and enabling evildoers. Good is called evil. Evil is called good. But this was not even the first time this had taken place in their culture. Turn back to Judges chapter number 17. Judges 17. Look with me at verse number 6. This verse here it sums up the book of Judges, which is filled with some of the weirdest, most bizarre stories in the whole Bible. Look here. And in those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. For sake of time, we won't look at Proverbs twelve fifteen, but Romans one twenty two sounds very similar 
to verse number 21. Look back at verse 21. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. You know what Romans 1, 22 tells us? It says that when they knew not God, they, uh, rather they, uh, 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 professing themselves to be wise, there it is, they became fools. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Listen, you do not get to define right and wrong. That's defined for us in the Bible. We live in a culture that wants to tell you what's right and wrong. I I can't get past how woke culture works. Um, I have seen people who were on the bleeding edge of woke five years ago who are now considered hateful for those same positions today. You you almost can't move fast enough to say, quote-unquote, woke. Woke. Um, I don't want a sinful culture telling me what's right and wrong. I want a holy God telling me what's right and wrong. Furthermore, if you continue to concede to that, to just appease, 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 you can't appease. It'll never be enough. It'll never be enough. You'll never take it far enough for them. You say, well, I don't want to come across as hateful or hurtful. I don't either. But I also don't want to get to heaven and, and, and God be disappointed in me because I was too concerned about appeasing a wickedness and not concerned enough about being righteous. I think that you should not let your good be evil spoken of. Go forth and live right and be kind about it. If someone's offended by the way you live, they're just going to have to be offended. We need Christians who will say, I'm not going to let what's right and wrong be determined by the culture. I'm going to let what's right and wrong be determined by the God of heaven. Notice the next woe laid out for us is a woe against corruption. Look, at, uh, look with me at uh, verse uh, number 22. Verse number 22 and 23. The Bible says, Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink. Now you may think off of 22 that this is dealing with alcoholism again, but it's not really. Look at 23. Which justify, so these men of great power, by the way, the, the wine and the mingling strong drink are more signs of status of great wealth and power. So verse 22 is talking about men of power and how they abuse that power in verse 23. Look, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. What's this talking about? Those of great power are abusing the or oppressing the poor. Now, for sake of time, I'm going to let you look these up later, but Ezekiel 18:12 and Ezekiel 22:29 talks about this same time period. The prophet Ezekiel is talking about the rich oppressing the poor, the rich taking advantage of the poor. And God is saying here, it's wrong. It's wrong what's going on here. People that are able to own the wine and are able to mingle, uh, what are they doing? They're taking advantage of a system and they're abusing the poor. They're taking advantage of the poor. There is corruption within 
their government. A woe against corruption. Well, let's finish out the Bible study tonight. And we only have another two or three minutes left here. Look with me at destruction and broken uh, bondage. What was the Lord's sanctions against Judah for all of this evilness within their culture? Well, the final one we see is destruction and bondage. Let's finish tonight. Look at, with me at verse number 24. And we see the end result here. Therefore, as the fire devoureth the stubble, and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore is the anger of the Lord kindled against his people, and he hath stretched forth his hand against them, and hath smitten them, and the hills did tremble, and their carcasses were torn in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. 25 is talking about the invasion, uh, the incoming invasion of the Babylonians, and how people will be left in the streets, others will be carried off into bondage. Look at 26. And he will lift up the ensign of the nations from far, and will hiss unto them, from the end of the earth, and behold, they shall come with speed swiftly. None shall be weary, nor stumble among them, nor shall slumber, uh, nor sleep. Neither shall the girdle of their loins be loose, nor the latchet of their shoes be broken, whose arrows are sharp, and all their bows bent, their horses' hoofs uh, and uh, shall be counted like flint, and their wheels like a whirlwind. Their roaring shall be like a lion. They shall roar like young lions. Yea, they shall roar and lay hold of the prey. This is speaking of Babylon coming in, feasting on the prey of Israel, and shall carry it away safe, and none shall deliver it. And in that day they shall roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one look into the land, behold, darkness and sorrow, and the light is darkened, and the heavens thereof, destruction and bondage. He says, because you have turned your back on me and gone and lived in sin, destruction and bondage is coming. Turn over to Psalm 137. Psalm 137 is the uh, psalm written while the Israelites were being carried into bondage by the Babylonians. And here we get a look of that destruction and bondage in the form of a psalm. Let's read the entire psalm there. Look there with me and we'll finish with this. By the river of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our hearts upon the willow in the midst thereof. For there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy... Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, uh, uh, Rasset, Rasset, even in the foundation thereof, O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Here we see them being carried away into bondage, their city lying in destruction. And now they wish... They could go back and do it all over again. What do we take away from this tonight? Listen up, and I'm going to finish just with this one little thought. Listen up. 
God always keeps His promises. Always. Now, that's great when it comes to a promise we want. God promises that if you sin, you will be punished. And He keeps those promises too. You make sure that you understand the principle from Galatians 6, 9, that you're going to reap what you sow. You live a life of covetousness, you can expect a life of punishment. The party life, unbelief and blasphemy, um, uh, uh, moral relativism, a woe against corruption. What's the answer to all this? It's really simple. Take your eyes off the culture and put your eyes on Christ. Amen? And understand that God is offering some strong warnings, just as He did to Jerusalem. He offers those same warnings to us. Let's live for Jesus.